I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. Today's episode features a recent conversation with Charles Duhigg, the author of Smarter, Faster, Better, The Transformative Power of Real Productivity. Charles is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for The New York Times, graduate of Harvard Business School and Yale College. He now lives in Brooklyn with his wife and two children and has written a book previously called The Power of Habit, which everyone I've ever spoken to, including myself who's read it, feels like it's actually one of those books that change, changes how we operate and is new book, Smarter, Faster, Better – does more of the same effective job. And after my interview with Charles, another special installment of What's on the Front Table will be joined by Kathy Langer, the director of buying at the Tattered Covered Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. But first, my interview with Charles. So I've been a fan uh, since I think I read Power of Habit in manuscript. You already had enthusiastic fans at Random House. I don't know whether they gave me the manuscript because they thought it would help me or <laughs> they thought I would love it, but I, it both helped and um, I loved it. So it's really been a pleasure uh, to read about you and think about having you on the show. Oh, well, thanks. I really appreciate that. Your book does an incredible job in a very practical way of helping us think about how to be smarter, faster, and better. But I'd start with the reverse as a question. What would you say is the biggest obstacle for people to be smarter, better, faster? Well, I think um, I think the biggest obstacle is that people often get tied up in being busy rather than mm. being productive. That's like the new thing. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's new. I mean, I think people have been busy for a long time, but I, but I think it's particularly easy to be busy now. And and the, and it's very easy to think that, that busyness and productivity are synonymous, mm. right? That a, that if you spend a full day kind of you know replying to emails and and sitting in on meetings that people have scheduled and and doing X and Y and Z, you can feel like you've had a very full day. But but of course, we really know that you haven't gotten anything really important done. And and this is one of the big insights is that productive people they tend to they, they, they tend to do a much better job, not necessarily of working harder. You know, we all only have twenty four hours in each day or making bigger sacrifices, but that instead what they're really good at is they're really good at figuring out how to push themselves to think a little bit more deeply about the choices that they're making, about how to set the right priorities, about how to push themselves to be innovative, about how to make their teams function better, about how to stay focused and avoid the the siren saw call of distractions around them. And and that's what really distinguishes people that are the most productive and the most successful is that they train themselves to think more deeply about the choices that are in front of them. In your book, you talk about two things, one that really resonated with me. So I'm a fanatical to-do list person, but I fall prey to one of the things you mentioned in the book, that if I have the list, I'm more likely to put the easy things up top or even worse if I feel like I haven't gotten done what I needed to during the day, I'll add something, check it off so that I could check anything off. Yeah, so, so that's, <laughs> that's, actually, um, that, that's actually not a great thing to do. No <laughs> kidding. The, the reason why is because that's using a to-do list for, for what's known as mood repair, right? We know that about 15% of people, what they'll do is they'll write down something they've already done, a task they've already done, and then they'll cross it off because it just feels so good. It's so satisfying. To sort of start your day by... by 
feeling like you've accomplished something. But in your book, you talk about a way to think of stretch goals and smart goals and coming up with your to-do list. Talk with us about that. So in all the studies that have been done of how the most productive and the most successful people do their to-do lists, what they found is something very different, that that most of us use our to-do list as essentially an external memory aid. We, we just sort of jot down everything that we want to get done so that we don't have to remember it. And, and that's okay. It's okay to have a list of things to help you remember tasks. But you should not use that as your to-do list. Because even if you're not writing down a task you've already completed, our brain has this natural instinct to look for the easiest things on, the, on that list and to try and do them first regardless of whether they're important or not. Mm. Because in doing so, we, it feels good. We just kind of feel like we're, we, we feel good about being able to get things done. So what the most successful people do is they tend to use their to-do list differently. They tend to instead write down only two or three things on their to-do list. But those are the, most, the two or three most important things that they want to get done today. Uh, oftentimes, we, we, we refer to these as stretch goals. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, what's the most important thing you want to get done today and this week? And what people do is that by limiting yourself to your most important goals on your to-do list, it does two things. First of all, it forces you to think about your priorities. So rather than using a to-do list as simply an external memory aid, it pushes you to really think about what are my priorities for today? What do I want to get done? And second of all, it forces you to focus on those priorities, to actually get done the most important things. Now, I, I actually use this method myself. I, every morning, I wake up and I rewrite my to-do list. And my to-do list only has like three things on it. The most important thing I want to get done today, the most important thing I want to get done this week, and if I get those two things done, what I want to do next. Mm. And I rewrite that list every single morning because my priorities change from day to day. I want to push myself to think for you know just 30 or 45 seconds about what are the most important things today, what ought my priorities to be. And that way, when I get to my desk, if I've you know, spent the last 45 minutes doing email and I look at my to-do list, and what my to-do list says is that the most important thing today is to get that memo written that I've been putting off for the last three weeks, then I think to myself, okay, I've got to close my email account and I've got to go and focus on writing that memo because that's what's genuinely productive. So let's, let's think about that in a practical way. For instance, I don't do this every day or every week, but at the beginning of every month, I write down what I call my macro objectives for the month. And then I try to make my to-do lists and tie them to one of those objectives. So I so I start with this approach that's proximate to what you're talking about. But then what I find is I, like most people, get thrown off course by what Stephen Covey and his seven most highly effective things to do says is the urgent, not important that we always end up with. That's the emails that come in that are requiring an answer. I'm a retailer. It might come from a customer or a colleague or an employee. So what do you do with all those things that there's an outside element creating an urgency, but they don't necessarily dovetail with what you know your objectives are. Yeah, you can only do what's on your stretch goal list, on your to-do list. What you're really asking is a question about how do we focus? How Mm -hmm. do we make decisions about what to pay attention to and what to ignore? And, And there's a chapter in Smarter, Faster, Better on that, about the science of focus and the neurology of focus. And what we know is that people who are really good at maintaining their focus, who are good at avoiding the distractions or ignoring distractions, are people who 
are in the habit of building what are known as mental models, or basically telling themselves stories about what they expect to happen, almost as it's happening. Right. So, so one of the things that we know, for instance, about the most successful executives is that they tend to visualize their coming day with just like half a degree more specificity than everyone mm. else. So most of us, when we're commuting to work, we think to ourselves, okay, I've got a meeting at 10 o'clock, and then I need to leave by 10.50 and get ready for that lunch I have to attend because the lunch, I have to leave for the lunch at 11. But really successful executives, what they do is they think to themselves, okay, I've got a meeting at 10 o'clock, and it's going to start with Jim bringing up that dumb idea that he always <laughs> brings up. And then, and then Mary is going to disagree with him because Mary always disagrees with Jim. They seem to hate each other. And then at that point, I'm going to jump in with my suggestion, and I'm going to win the meeting because, you know, my suggestion is coming at just the right moment. Now, it only takes like 10 or 15 seconds to kind of think to yourself, well, how's that meeting going to unfold, mm. to visualize it a little bit? But in doing so, what people are doing is they're building a mental model of how they expect that day to unfold. Mm. And what we know about building mental models is that our brain, our neurology and our psychology, it relies on these mental models and little stories we tell ourselves to almost subconsciously decide what to pay attention to and focus on and what we can safely ignore. So if you've spent three minutes in the morning visualizing your day and you say, look, the thing I want to get done is I got to get that memo done before noon. And you get to work and someone comes up to your desk and they say, hey, can you come sit in on this meeting with me? Then you almost automatically, your brain will say, like, no, 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 I have a vision of how this morning is right. supposed to go. It's, it's me focusing on this memo. And you say to the person, no, I can't, I can't go sit in on this meeting. But on the other hand, if, if you've been telling yourself stories about, you know, building mental models about your day at work, and, and you said, and you're saying, like, I got to get that memo done. But of course, if my boss asks for some help, my boss is the most important thing. I got to drop everything to do with, you know, she asked me to do. Then you have a, you have a different mental model. And, and that's guiding you to say, yeah, 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 boss, I'll come and I'll help you with whatever you need. But the point is that the way that we actually figure out what to pay attention to, how to make very quick decisions about what to focus on and what to ignore, we, we can't do that in a vacuum. We need some type of mental model, mm. some little story that we've told ourselves. And it doesn't have to be a super detailed or interesting story, it can be something that you literally spend just three or four minutes each morning thinking about, but it'll make a big difference. That feels like a great way um, to think about the day because really, who doesn't have three minutes? Even people who say they're just impossibly busy. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. Can figure out three minutes. You know, the other thing you talk about in the book, which, which like m many of the theories that you address in the book comes from deep research uh, that has been done from a neurological standpoint, from many studies. Talk for a second about about transforming what might be characterized as chores into meaningful choices. So one of the things that we know is that motivation is generated by feeling like you're in control, right? So when someone tells you to do something, when you feel like you have no choice and you're just doing it because you have to do it, it's very, very hard to motivate. But what we know about the neurology of motivation is that when people can reframe an activity as a choice that they're making, as something that's tied to the sort of their, their deeper values and aspirations, then motivation becomes much more easy to generate. There's a part of the brain where motivation starts called the striata that's activated by feeling like we're in control, by feeling like we have a choice. And one of my favorite examples of this is that I was interviewing this one researcher at Oxford. And, and this is a guy who has a, uh, he's an oncology researcher. He has an MD, PhD. Mm. 
And I was asking him, you know, what's the thing that you have trouble motivating for? And he said, well, what I really hate doing is I hate grading students' papers. I just think it's so boring. And he says, so what I do is before I start grading students' papers, I go through this little mantra. I tell myself, okay, look, I'm going to choose to grade these students' papers. Because if I choose to grade these students' papers, then the university can collect tuition dollars from them. And if the university can collect tuition dollars from them, they can fund my research. And if they can fund my research, then I can continue working on cancer. And if I continue working on cancer, I might be able to save people's lives. Mm. So by choosing to grade these students' papers, I'm going to end up saving people's lives. <laughs> now, what's ridiculous about that is that, first of all, you know, it's kind of ridiculous on the face of it, right? But, but, I, you understand but not really. But, but second of all, this guy is an MD-PhD. Like, it's crazy that he has to go through some little mantra mm-hmm. to mot- him, motivate himself before he grades students' papers. But that's actually why he has an MD-PhD, is because he's in the habit of doing this. Right. He's in the habit of taking these kind of annoying little chores that he has to do and reframing them as a choice that's connected to his deepest aspirations, his deepest values. And when you're in the habit of doing that, it's a lot easier to generate the motivation and the self-discipline to do something that's hard or kind of boring. So you've learned so much over your career, these books that you've written, your extraordinarily accomplished, well-educated by Yale and Harvard. Do you ever feel nonproductive? Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, I feel... I mean, I, I, this is kind of the point of productivity is that a big part of productivity is defining what productivity is for you, right? Mm. Because productivity not only differs from person to person, it differs from day to day. Like a productive Wednesday morning might be one where you wake up early and you get through all of the, you know, the memos that you need to read and then you're you're at your desk by 8.15. But a productive Friday morning might be one where you get to work late because you walked your kid to school and you had a conversation with them. A productive Saturday looks very different from a productive Tuesday. Mm. And, and the point is that in many ways, it's important to understand that not only does productivity change, but part of being productive is figuring out for yourself what productivity means. So there's, there's a lot of times that like, that like I feel unproductive. Now, to some external observer, it might look like I'm getting a lot of stuff done, but then I take a step back and I say, like, I'm not actually doing the stuff I want to do. I'm not doing the stuff that I think is most important. And then there's other times when someone might look at me and think I'm not getting anything done because I'm just sitting there reading articles or staring off into the, to the sky. But, but it feels really productive to me because I'm thinking. I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I tell this story? How do I find some topic that matters? You know, one of my favorite parts of... of your book was just that idea of thinking about how do we define productivity for ourselves. And I I think in the book you use the juxtaposition of meaningful rewards with the least wasted effort. And the idea that your Saturday productivity is different than your Wednesday productivity or even your Thursday from your Friday, I think is a very liberating way for us to think about a day. I absolutely agree. I think that you're right that, you know, what productivity really is, is it's about getting closer to the goals that I think are important, getting closer mm. to the life that I actually want with the least stress and strife possible. You know, it's not about, it's not about sacrificing myself or spending hours chained to my desk. It's about building the mental habits that allow me to figure out what do I really want to do right now? Like, what do I think is meaningful and important and impactful? And then once I have figured that out, how do I structure my life mm. in such a way that it, I, 
I get as close as possible to those goals without having to kind of lose everything else I care about in the meantime. And, you know, Charles, in the, in the beginning of the book, you talk about reaching out to Atul Gawande, who's a um, extremely accomplished doctor, writer, author, and I've had the pleasure of hosting him at R.J. Julius, and I love the story. Um, you reached out to him as a person to begin thinking about the smarter uh a book that you were working on, and he, you were introduced to him by a colleague. He was very gracious and wrote back to you that his time didn't allow him to do that, and you thought he was probably, you know, saving lives or doing something, and he was, in fact, on vacation. Right. He was, was going to go to a concert with his kids and then take his wife on a vacation. Yeah, and I think that's the point. You know, Atul's, Atul's kind of this amazing example of productivity. He, he's a writer for the New Yorker magazine. He's a, a surgeon. He teaches at Harvard. He's part of, he runs this, this um, institute that's part of the World Health Organization. And you would think that this is someone who literally every minute of every day is scheduled but that's not actually true at all. Mm. He has lots of spare time. He has spare time for the things that he cares about. And the reason why he gets so much done is because he's not scheduled every minute of every day. Yeah, It's because he's instead what he's really good at is deciding what matters to him and focusing on that rather than getting caught up in the need to reply to every email or show up for, for meetings that he doesn't care about or, or even pursuing important things that he personally doesn't think is a good use of his time. The other quality that he has, which I admire and don't possess, but I, I, I have noticed this about most people that I think are the most productive in the way in which you talk about it, and that is there's a preternaturally um, aura of calm about him. You know, he, he just never seems rushed to me. I think that's right, and I think that's a big part of developing these habits that allow us to think more deeply is that we develop habits to allow ourselves to be contemplative, but Mm. also to, there's no reason to be rushed if you're doing the things that matter to you. I would assume from reading your book, but I'll ask the question outright, that you don't think much of multitasking. Well, no, I think that multitasking is fine if, if you're kind of deliberately choosing to do multitasking, right? Like, I mean, multitasking to one person is being efficient to another person. Mm. There, there is someone out there who says, like, oh, you know, walking and, and, and reading at this, or walking and eating at the same time, that's dangerous <laughs> multitasking. But for the, most of us, it just seems like a natural way to be. So I think lots of us multitask. We just don't even think of it as multitasking because we just think of it as something that's ne- normal and easy. We tend to start using this word multitasking when it's things that seem to um, interfere with each other, right? Mm. When I'm trying to make a phone call and read on and reply to emails and pay attention to what my colleague is saying. Right. Then then I get overwhelmed and that that's what I call multitasking. And and yeah, I think that, you know, most studies show that if you if you can't focus properly on what you're doing, you're probably going to do a pretty poor job of it. But you can also train yourself to focus on more than one thing at a time. It's just a question of do is it important enough to you to do those things at the same time that it's worth taking the time and energy to train yourself on how to do them both well. Yeah. What would be the the single uh, element that you would hope readers will come away with from reading smarter faster better i think the biggest is, the biggest insight is you know we tend to talk about productivity and success 
in terms of making sacrifices or in, th- in terms of pushing ourselves or in terms of working so hard that it, that it seems like that's all that exists. And what we now know from science, what actually makes some people more successful and more productive than others, and it's not that. It's instead learning how to develop these habits in our lives that push us to think more deeply about the things that matter, to think more deeply about what our goals really ought to be, mm. that allows us to focus better because to, to, um, by building these mental models, to, to motivate more easily because we're in the habit of, of connecting this task in front of us to something that really matters. Mm. Once you learn these mental habits, once you learn to train yourself to think just a little bit differently, it puts an enormous amount of success within close reach. Mm. And in many ways, it's, that's why I wrote the book, is to help people understand it's not about chaining yourself to your desk. That's a wonderful... It's not about replying to every email. Instead, it's about building habits that allow you to think more deeply about the choices you're making. Mm. And I, I, love, I love that you explain it that way because in my reading of the book, I was left with a motivation to actually be calmer and equally or more productive. And that and that isn't what you generally come away with when you read books that are talking about how to improve the way we operate. They're they're not thinking about that residual, that really motivating effect that you talk about. And I think you did, you know, just a it's a kind of book I want to go back and read again. Uh, because I think for the way a lot of us learn, I think reading it a few times actually makes some of the strategies that you talk about become habitual. I think that's right. So let me ask you a, a question on a, a totally different note before we run out of uh, time. What is the book, Charles, that changed your life? What's the book that changed my life? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'll answer that in, in two ways. You know, I think the the... The book that changed my life originally appeared as a, a magazine article. It was, it was Hiroshima, written by John Hershey, mm-hmm. um, that appeared in The New Yorker. It took over the entire issue of The New Yorker, and then they, they published it as a book. And it's, it's one of the first um, really genuine examples of, of narrative nonfiction, mm-hmm. of writing a story about something that actually happened, mm-hmm. about rooting uh, an, something with a novelistic quality in real life. And it was incredibly impactful. I mean, the the impact that Hiroshima had is almost hard to even understand today because there's so few things that have that same impact. It was read by millions and millions of people like, all around the world. It became, you know, it's about the, the dropping of the bomb, mm-hmm. the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, and what happened in the immediate aftermath and how that impacted people. And a lot of what became kind of this public conception of the horrors of atomic warfare were shaped because of Hiroshima, because people had read the stories of these lives that had been turned upside down by this by this incredibly powerful bomb, and so that that was that's always been a really important book for me. I I think the other one is this book that probably most people have never heard of, um, called Red Sky at Morning. Mm. Um, it's a it, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's a book that's set in New Mexico, and I read it a lot when I was a kid. 
Um, and it's just it's kind of a quirky but but beautiful book. Well, I love those examples. And, and I do think, I mean, I thought about that because I read and listened to um, your latest book. And, that I, you know, in that sort of classic way, I didn't want to get out of my car to the meeting because I wanted to hear what happened to one of the people you use to describe a quality or research that's done. It was it was almost like a mystery. I was so listening good. to. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, I can't get I mean, out of the car. <laughs> like my first goal is always to like to to intensely entertain you because if you're if you're entertained, you'll stick around to learn. Well, the check idea. that box, Charles. I would say oh, I would say you've got that down. And what are you working on next? Now I'm a columnist at the New York Times, and um, I'm just spending most of my time trying to learn how to be a columnist. How fun. Well, I love reading anything you write, Charles. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thank you for taking the time to join us on Just the Right Book. And I look forward to having you on again and reading everything you write. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Charles Duhigg. Now let's find out what's on the front table at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. We are joined today on the Just the Right Book podcast by Kathy Langer, who's the director of buying at the venerable Tattered Cover. It's the bookstore that the rest of us all look to for guidance and standards and integrity. And Kathy's been an integral part of the success and standard that Tattered Cover brings to us. So, Kathy, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne, and those were very kind words about the store. Well, well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. So, Kathy, how long have you been at Tattered Cover? I forget. I started at the Tattered Cover in 1977. Wow. Shocking as that may seem, I was pretty much right out of college. So it's been my entire career. And how did you decide to become a bookseller? Well, as as a lot of us say, you don't ever think that's what your career is going to be in college. And I, <laughs> I uh, was, was thinking I was going to go to law school and looking for something to do in the interim. And yeah. a friend of mine was working at the Tattered Cover, and she suggested I go in and interview with Joyce Meskis, and it went well. And she offered me the job and asked me if, if she hired me, if I could please promise to stay for at least one year because there was a lot of training involved, and, and she wanted to be sure I was somewhat committed to the job, and I was just horrified at the thought of committing to a year of anything. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can see it was, a, it was a good fit, and that year turned into um, quite a few. Do you feel that the way you read before you were a bookseller changed when you became a bookseller? For instance, did you finish more books or less books? Did you change how you read? Did it change your pleasure, either more or less? I think it did change it. I hadn't thought about it quite in those terms. But in recent years, as a buyer, as an occasional reviewer, and and, uh, having, you know, a lot of people wanting to hear what I'm thinking about with what I'm reading, it's it gets to be more challenging because, A, I have to choose a few from an incredible pile of books that mm. I'm reading ahead of time. And I don't finish a lot of the books that I start because I just don't have time. And then when you're on the floor and if a customer asks you if you've read something and you say, yes, but I didn't finish it, they want to know why. And they yeah. say, But I'll finish one out of maybe... 10 books that I start. Yeah. You know, I I would have used exactly the same percentage for me. And I found before I was a bookseller 
there isn't a book I wouldn't finish because I thought, well, what if the like really brilliant parts coming up or what if it's not until the end? But again, like you, I think that we have such a sense of how much we want to get to either to have an opinion for publishers or have an opinion for the store or writing newsletters. But I, you know, I, I used to feel badly about it. But I've started to think if I don't want to finish the book, there is something about the book for me at that moment that just isn't working. Well, and it it may even be working, but something else is working even better. I mean, I always look at my piles and something always wins. And and I'm the same way that you were before my book selling career. But now when I have customers who talk about whether or not they should finish a book, I say life is too short. Yeah. (laughs) If you're not loving it, you know, go on to the next one. It's just there's so many incredible books out there. And if it's not enthralling or wonderful, move on. Yeah, exactly. And, And, you know, I've noticed that there's a couple of books that I've read in the last few weeks that had me utterly attached to the book. And I thought, boy, when that happens, I just, that is just so delicious. That is, you know, it's why I think we all became booksellers, why we love reading. And you realize that you might as well keep hoping for the book that's going to do that. And and as you say, not waste your time if it's not. Right, exactly. So in 40 years at Tattered Cover, what surprised you either early on or later on or in the middle? What's been the most surprising thing about working at Tattered Cover? I'm not sure I would say at this point anything (laughs) surprises me. You can't be surprised anymore, Kathy. No, no. I think think early on um, what was surprising and so fun was working closely with Joyce Meskis and living her vision of what a bookstore could be. And then as our lives changed, as the industry changed, and we had incredible, as we say, challenges and opportunities, you know, we would just look at what was going on. How can we how can we have the store do well in whatever circumstances we're in, not be afraid of making changes, not looking at the tattered cover as a physical place, but rather an idea. I've spent a lot of time talking to customers about that, sometimes grief counseling when we're moving a store, but telling them that, that the tattered cover isn't this building or that building or this many square feet or that many square feet. It's it's an idea that is embodied in a wonderful institution. You know, I, lo- I love that idea, Kathy, because, you know, one of the things I've thought about as I think about the arc of time for tattered cover and the period in book selling that it encompasses, meaning it included the heydays of the 80s and the fear of the late 90s and then the economic uh, turn down in 2008 and the onslaught of Amazon. Did you ever worry that tattered cover couldn't survive all that? No. Hmm. Um, I worried, you know, there were there were some real struggles, um, but I really I'm I'm just an eternal optimist. I think it's a it's a you know important quality for, for independent booksellers. Yeah. Um, but I you know I was very involved in in talking with our management team about you know which direction we should go, what we should do, hard choices that we had to make, but always really, you know, maybe, I don't think it was blind faith in, in, in Joyce, her business sense, because she's a really, you know, she's a good book person, but she's a really 
brilliant businesswoman yeah. as well. And, and um, just felt with, you know, with her at the helm and the support of the community and, and uh, a lot of really, really, really hard work, <laughs> we'd be fine. Yeah. Or, or still here. You and know. you've had a pretty steady team. Yeah. Which I think helps a lot so that everybody's got a good amount of institutional memory. Right. I mean, I was in, in talking to a couple of people the other day, and we realized that between three of us, there was 100 years of it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, Kathy. It's a little scary. <laughs> so now, speaking of 100 years, uh, you've announced your retirement. How yes. how tough a decision was that, and what informed that decision? Well, it was a really hard decision. I mean, I thought about it for many, many months, and it was scary because, you know, I love my work, and I love the tattered cover in the industry. I mean, the people are just incredible. So it was, it was a hard decision, but it, uh, it came about partly looking at um, how I was finally in the position I'm in now, which was the buyer before me let everyone know well ahead of time that she was retiring and, and allowed for a lot of good training and mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the other piece of it is that my husband is semi-retired. We want to travel a lot more. I have three young grandsons here in Denver and uh, just felt like it was time to, to turn over the reins to someone else and to look at the world a little differently. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I don't quite know what that's going to be like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm interested in exploring it. I, I think it will be really, really fun, and, and uh, maybe I'll calm down a little bit, too. <laughs> yeah. So, so your plan after retirement is to just give yourself the space and see how it goes. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see, but I'm just going to take some space and, and enjoy the blank slate. Excellent, excellent. So before you ride into the sunset, here's the question uh, that I've been asking bookstores that join us. It's in the frame of what's on the front table. Some of it's driven by media, some of it's driven by the jacket, some of it's driven by what we love. It's, you know, a whole host of things that involve the judgment that I think independent booksellers uh, bring to the process of bookselling. Okay, well... I'll start with what we have. We have a front table, then then we sort of have a super front table. <laughs> um, so I'll start with the, the super front table, which is a program we call our VRB, our Very Impressive Book. And we, we pick one each month, generally a, a new release, and, and feature it largely, and then also continue to put the older VIBs on it. So it's, it, it's mm. super favorites of ours and one that we love and we think are going to be doing very well. So our May pick is American War mm. by Omar El Akkad. And um, this is an unbelievably powerful dystopian novel. Uh, you're reading this story um, from the point of view of the protagonist, uh, a girl and woman named Sarat Chestnut. It's vividly dystopian, but the thing that strikes me so incredibly about this novel, which is also beautifully written, is that it's not completely far-fetched, which mm. is really, really scary. Um, it reads very well. Uh, and I think the reason it's done so well is that the author is a um, journalist, and he has spent time in the military tw- trials at Guantanamo Bay. He's, he's covered the Arab Spring, Ferguson. Uh, so he really 
he's seen all this in real life and then translates it into this incredible dystopian novel. You know, and one of the things uh, that I wonder about with books like this, so dystopian novels have been the driving force in young adult books, and it's you know, beginning to slip into adult books, American War being a prime example. What do you think the appeal of dystopian novels is to both young adults or to any of us? To me, it's especially with this one, it it was seeing how bad things could get Mm. with really compelling characters. It was seeing how things actually are. I mean, there's some real truth in what he's writing about, but getting it in, in a way that you're not reading a political account of what's happening in the Middle East. You're reading something that's kind of easier to get through, if I can put it that way. I, I'm not quite done, although I admit I read the last chapter a little bit ago. Ooh, Kathy, that's another conversation about skipping to the end. I don't do it often, but but it's just he's an incredible storyteller, and I have been obsessively reading this and a couple of other things the last week or so, and then, you know, we can talk about what wins. That's funny. All right, good. Um, So what else is on the front table? Well, another thing on the front table just out today is um, Richard Russo's new collection of uh, long short stories, Trajectories. Mm. So we're excited about that. We we always sell and support him well. Yeah, and he's uh, he's such an honorable, not only is he a gifted writer, but he's a very honorable man. Yeah, yes, he's one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of his as well. Yes, um, and then also these are connected short stories, but Elizabeth Strout's new collection, Anything is Possible, mm. which is also just incredibly brilliant and and i have a secret confession this is the first time i've read her which i know is going to sound ridiculous but she's just i'm just enthralled with her writing this uh connected stories it's kind of a novel but but you know as connected stories uh sort of is a follow-up to my name is lucy barton which took place in the same town and the character lucy barton looms large in each of these stories and, in fact, appears in one of them. Uh, her writing is beautiful. Uh, sometimes she reminds me of Kent Harris, partly the way he portrays small towns and the, the interlocking characters in a small town and beautiful, quiet writing. Um, but I just, I'm just so thrilled and I'm going to, that's one thing I'm going to do when I retire is read old books, yeah. read more of who I want to read more of. Uh, and we have Born by Jeff Vandermeer on the front table. I think this came out last week, uh, but we're, again, selling it like hotcakes. So, Kathy, back to Elizabeth Stroud a second, uh, because I finished it this morning. Okay. And I love her. I love her writing. And I'm also a William Trevor fan. And I think um, she is proximate to him in her way of depicting small lives, or or kind of like Alice Munro, mm-hmm. in the ability to depict uh, small town life. I shouldn't say small lives, small town life. And I was riveted by this book. I just, I was disappointed any time I had to leave the book, you know, mm-hmm. to operate in real life. But <laughs> let me ask you this question, because... In this book, she has a lot of characters who are are struggling or have struggled with things that 
exist in many, many lives. Would you say it's a book of despair or would you say it's a book of celebration of what lives can be? I think it's a little more on the despairing than the celebratory side. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like there's that there's a darkness that pervades it. Yeah, that, that wins over the celebratory. There is there is a degree of that, and I love sort of the close look at a real life and and what comes with that and how hard that can be. But I I don't find it to be uplifting. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I don't know that I found it. I, I think I agree with you, but there's a part of me, I didn't find it uplifting, but there was a part of me that was reminded that it was somewhat about the wonder of resilience of humans mm-hmm. and that that had a kind of begrudging optimism. I can see that. And it is begrudging optimism. It's, it's, uh, and I think that's the truth for so many of us. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think what, you know, you think about, you could read the book one way and say, holy moly, these people are just dealing with like endless travesties. But when you really think about it, it's probably not that far from what many, many people have dealt with, we don't necessarily see it. People are not that transparent. And now the characters aren't that transparent. It's just that, you know, to each other. Yes, yes. All right, so let me finish by asking you the question I love to ask, which is, what's the book that changed your life, Kathy? Oh, Roxanne, that's so hard. And I really have to say there isn't one book that really changed my life. There's books that have changed the way I think about life. Mm. Um, starting, you know, even as a young, young reader into my adolescence, I remember vividly reading Crime and Punishment and just feeling the pain, you know, how that can be. And, and um, But as a sort of medium young adult, a Prayer for Owen Meany really sort of switched a light in my brain about um, kind of the meaning of a person's life and mm. not to be overly spiritual or religious, but really that that everyone has a gift and is born for a reason. It was such a powerful novel, and I always had loved John Irving anyway, um, but I've had more conversations about that book in, in more strange places than almost any other, and I really think it did, it did just kind of flip a switch in my brain, and I just don't Yeah, know. well, I think yeah, th- that's interesting. I, 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 I totally get that, and I often use the term which is similar to what you're saying, that sometimes when I read something, it rearranges your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you just look at people or the world a little bit differently, as if you've turned the kaleidoscope a bit. Yeah. So, Kathy, when is your retirement? Uh, March of 2018, so I have another almost year to go. Oh, good. So we'll get to see each other and have more conversations, won't we? We will. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. And, you know, many, many thanks for what 40 years of your wisdom in reading have brought to the industry. Oh, thank you, Roxanne. This has been fun and my career has been a blast. For a complete list of all the books we talked about in today's episode, including Charles Duhigg's Smarter, Faster, Better, and to find out what's on the front table at the Tattered Cover Bookstore, just head to bookpodcast.com. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, rate and review us. We want to hear from you. Please email your questions to info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keogh. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Thank you all for listening.